Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to episode 26 of the Equip Project podcast. Jim joins me once again from Kalinchi. How are you doing, Jim? Well, I should be polite and say I'm doing very well, but <laughs> this feels like episode 126, given <laughs> the difficulties we've had getting all this recording sorted out remotely. Remote podcasting sounds like a wonderful thing, but in practice, it can be an absolute mission, is what we found out. Yes. It's, it's not something we wish to continue for the long term, let's be honest. I, I practice abstinence, but I have to say, if anything was to drive me to alcohol, <laughs> it would be the, this stupid microphone. Oh dear. Anyhow, if you want any tips on how to do remote podcasting effectively, do contact Jim Crooks. I'll give you his email at the end of the podcast. <laughs> that's, just, that's just mean. <laughs> oh man. In this episode, Jim, we're going to actually address a topic that I've actively been trying to avoid for quite some time. I know that sounds bad, but um, it is a really important one, but one that, that slightly terrifies me at times. And that's the question of how the whole story of humanity actually ends. So we're going to be thinking about the return of Christ and the Christian hope of a new heaven and earth. And there's a lot in the Bible about end times. I'm not just talking about books like Daniel or the book of Revelation. The theological visions of Paul and Peter are grounded deeply in the idea that Christ will return to sort out this messed up world and make everything right. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah wrote those beautiful visions of a world free from pain or death creation itself will be redeemed and transformed. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion together and a, and a little child shall lead them. Yes, the Bible ends with that lovely picture in Revelation chapter 21 of a beautiful world to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. The books you've mentioned also contain some really difficult and disturbing passages about the end of history. So Revelation is particularly full of, of terrible visions. A final world empire is pictured with this great beast who rises up in defiance against God. And at its head, we encounter this figure known as the Antichrist. And we read of plagues and terrible ecological disasters and wrath being poured out on the earth by God. What are we to make of these parts of scripture? I was raised in a little evangelical church in North Belfast during the Troubles. Uh, and a British soldier stationed in Belfast became a Christian after an outreach event we held. And he was a member of the Parachute Regiment. And to be honest, he scared every one of us. And someone in the church gave him a Bible. And he had never even seen one before. And the first thing he did was to turn to the book of the Revelation. I want to understand how the story ends, he said. I can still see the fear in the eyes of the, the dear man who had given him the Bible. How was he going to explain Revelation to someone who had never even seen a Bible before? I wonder what he made of, of that passage in chapter 9 where it talks about locusts emerging from the great abyss and being given power like the scorpions on earth. <laughs> yes. Now, these prophetic writings are a very specific type of literature. It's called apocalyptic writing. An apocalyptic literature is full of metaphors and strange images and colour. 
It's as if the writer is trying to explain something we've never encountered before uh, by saying, well, it's a bit like this or a bit like that. I guess the obvious question is, why would anyone bother to write in that kind of way? I remember once hearing Don Carson give a brilliant answer to that question, and he asked his audience to imagine that they were given an unusual task to perform. So he said, imagine that you're asked to visit a pre-Stone Age tribe in some remote part of the world, like Papua New Guinea. You travel along mud pathways in an old Toyota Land Cruiser and walk for a couple of days before you reach the tribe. You spend a lot of time with the tribe until you become fluent in their language, and now comes your task. You have been asked to explain electricity to this tribe. Well, what would you say? I have come to you to talk to you about, oh, better invent a new word here, electricity. It's like a powerful spirit that runs along vines. You, you loop the vines from tree to tree and push this stuff into the vine and then the vine is connected into your thatched roof and down the wall and it goes round really fast and gets very hot so you can boil water in your clay pots that w- there won't even be any smoke. And you can attach these special little glass things to your vines and they become like little suns giving light at night time. Well, the tribes people would stare at you blankly. What's wrong with them, you ask? Well, absolutely nothing. It's just that they have no categories to think about these things. They don't have the mental framework of thought forms that would allow them to understand ACDC or generation or electromagnetism. They have no categories to allow them to process the concepts you're talking about. They've never seen them or experienced these things. So you'd have to fall back on analogies. It's a bit like this or almost like that. Yeah, that's helpful. So so what you're saying is when God, the Holy Spirit, has to explain spiritual realities to us, sometimes he has to use analogies. And that's why some of the Bible uses this strange form of literature we call apocalyptic writing. So God uses metaphors and symbols and images and color, and he uses similes to expand our horizons. Exactly. So it would be completely wrong to use these word pictures as concrete descriptions of physical reality. That road leads to madness. This topic is pretty controversial, Jim. Even once we get used to the literary strangeness of the book, uh, of a book like Revelation, it's a simple fact that Christians disagree on how we should actually interpret them. There's a lot of different models around, and I think that can leave young Christians feeling pretty confused. How should we structure this conversation so that we can help people effectively navigate their way through a difficult topic? Well, I would like to suggest two tests that we can apply to ourselves um, to make sure we're approaching the subject in the right way. And having thought about two tests, we can then discuss two principles uh, that will guide our thinking. And then finally, I'll set out one possible model of the future uh, for, for you to critique. Now, I don't agree with it my, completely myself, but it's a helpful point of engagement for young Christians to gather around. Okay, so two tests, two principles, and one possible model. I think that sounds good. What's your first test that young Christians can apply to themselves? There's always been a real temptation for young believers to shrug their shoulders and say, this sort of stuff doesn't matter at all. So my first test is, make sure you don't think that the end of history is irrelevant. The Apostle Peter and also Paul argue repeatedly that our beliefs about the end of history have amazingly practical consequences for the way we live. Yeah, when Paul is writing to those new converts in Thessalonica, he spends nearly all of his time talking about the return of Christ. And Peter, in his second epistle, spends most of his time talking about the end of the world. And then he asks, in light of this, brothers and sisters, what sort of people should we be? Yeah, 
The greatest risk facing your generation is what we might call the inward turn. The instinct always to see life as about me and my needs and my desires. So we could end up with a generation of Christian narcissists. And the best way out of that selfish vortex is to remember that you are situated in God's grand story. And that story, like every good story, has a beginning, a middle and an end. So imagine if you could become utterly convinced that history is moving to an inevitable climax. Imagine if, like that soldier from the Parachute Regiment, you could really understand how it was going to end. Think about the impact all your values and your goals in life would start to align with the universe's teleological purpose, to use a a technical term. And that idea is so different from the religions of the East, which view time as an endless cycle. They have this wheel of life, whereas Christians have the arrow of time. History is God's story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we find our purpose when we situate ourselves in his grand story. Yeah. Now, my second test is, make sure you're not embarrassed by the Bible's view of history. I remember once sitting in a church listening to a Bible teacher talk about prophecy. And he had one of those big wall charts behind him uh, with an event in red marked the return of Christ. That was all very interesting stuff. But I remember thinking at the time, if my school friends ever saw this, they would think I was nuts. Yeah, I can really relate to that, German. I think a lot of young Christians probably can. It probably is also connected to the fact that, that I've avoided this topic. Is almost a sense of, this just sounds a bit wacky. There's also nothing new in that, Jim, because the Apostle Peter warned that Christians um, in the early church should be, be careful about this. Uh, he said that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, maybe I would have had more courage uh, if I had read Second Peter as a teenager. But the truth was that I was embarrassed by the idea that Christ would enter into our history once more. Now, I need to think carefully about that, because my problem wasn't so much that God would draw down the curtain on human history. My problem was that history would continue after Christ returned. And yet, it seems to me, that is Peter's precise argument in his second epistle. Christ's return is an event in history. But that was too embarrassing for me, so I took refuge in C.S. Lewis's famous phrase, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. Of course, a lot of Christians actually would side with C.S. Lewis on this point. Uh, They'd argue that the return of Christ brings the history of the universe to a close. Uh, That's absolutely right. And I respect my brothers and sisters in Christ who take that view. Their theological arguments deserve the most careful examination. A good number of our listeners might end up agreeing with them. So my point here is, is... is about motivation. My teenage theology, if I'm being honest, was driven by an ignoble fear of looking crazy. I was driven more by fear of embarrassment than any biblical arguments. Now, the point I'm making here is more substantial than you might think. In fact, a great deal of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians is a rebuke to Christians who choose the intellectually comfortable, the least socially embarrassing view of biblical history. It's apparent that sometime previously, Paul had outlined the overall landscape of the great story's ending when he was with the Thessalonians. So he had told them about the rise of the man of sin, the Antichrist, who would become the object of humanity's worship. Then would come the so-called Day of the Lord, a terrible time when God's wrath would be poured out on the earth. 
and then Christ would return to take up the reins of human government. But some false teachers had come along and they had started to peddle a much more palatable version of that story. The day of the Lord has already come, they said, but in a spiritual sense. So they spiritualized Paul's landscape of future events. And by doing that, they made it much more intellectually palatable, much less difficult to hold to in a society that worshipped Caesar as God. So your first test is make sure that you don't think that the end of history is irrelevant. Our convictions about how the world ends will actually affect how we live in the here and now. And your second test is no matter what model of the future we end up accepting, make sure we aren't embarrassed by the Bible's view of history. That's a real challenge, I think, to me, Jim. We decided to structure this conversation as two tests, two principles, and one possible model of the future. So we've thought about the two tests. What's your first principle that you think should govern our thinking about end times? Okay, so if we have tested ourselves to make sure we're approaching this uh, issue in the right way, uh, let's now think about the two principles. And the first one is that biblical prophecy reveals historical patterns, not specific times or dates. So if you meet anyone who tells you that the world will end on such and such a date, you can be absolutely certain that they are nuts. They're also dabbling in false prophecy, which is a perilous thing to do. (laughs) I'll bear that in mind if anyone ever suggests any dates to me. (laughs) Jim Crooks thinks you're nuts. (laughs) (laughs) That applies to a great number of people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even if we reject the idea of specific dates, how should we approach a prophetic book like Revelation? Have the events we read about in Revelation taken place already, or will they occur in the future? The answer, I'm afraid, is yes. So rebellious men commit the same types of sin in different periods of history, and the same sin produces the same judgment. So the judgments we read about in Revelation have happened, are happening, and will happen. But there's one really important caveat that I must add here. We shouldn't think that just because the pattern of history repeats itself, that the scale of the problem stays constant. The cycle of sin and judgment may repeat, but the scale is increasing until we get to the great and terrible judgments of the end times. So let me try and illustrate that. Imagine that I had a tennis ball in my hand and that I bounced it down the hallway that runs the length of my house. So after each bounce, the tennis ball would follow the same curved path through the air. The pattern would repeat itself. But over time, of course, the size of the bounce would get smaller. The pattern would repeat, but at a smaller and smaller scale. Now imagine that process in reverse. Okay, Imagine a ball that bounced repeatedly, curving through the air with the same pattern, but the scale of the bounce increased each time until at some point the ball crashes with enormous force right through the roof of the house. So let me apply that. Down through the centuries, God's people have taken the word pictures in Revelation and have applied them to real historical events like the fall of Rome or the collapse of communism. And I think that in many cases they were right to do so. But that is not to say that any passage in Revelation or Matthew can be ticked off as fulfilled. We must remember that the most catastrophic iteration of these judgments, the great and final judgment, lies in the future. Its scale and terror will have no precedent in history. So the first principle is that biblical prophecy reveals historical patterns, not specific times or dates. What about the second principle? Well, this one is a little controversial, I'm afraid. We need to think carefully uh, about that concept in Scripture called the kingdom of God. Um, we, we did get a specific 
question about this, Ollie, so that's one of the reasons why I'm talking about it. So I better start off by clarifying that I'm talking about the messianic kingdom. You see, there is a sense in which God is king over all human affairs. Uh, in his sovereign rule, God rules in the kingdom of men. There never was a time and there never will be when that isn't true. But in the prophecy of Daniel, we get the promise that God will establish a new type of kingdom. This one is ruled by his Messiah. Daniel says, And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. Now the controversial bit about all that is how the messianic kingdom gets built. And my suggested principle is that it it gets built in phases. So in the first instance, the kingdom is built on Christ himself. So Jesus could stand in front of the Pharisees and say, the kingdom of God is within your grasp. But through the work of the cross, the first phase of the kingdom gets established. And it is a spiritual kingdom. Okay? Only those who have been born again, says Christ to Nicodemus, can see this kingdom. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his son's love. So every true believer, that means, is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Yes, when I became a Christian... I became a citizen in the kingdom of God. I took Christ's kingly yoke upon me. In other words, I accepted his government over my life. So my personality became an outpost of heaven's kingdom. Whenever I cooperate with the Holy Spirit within me, God's will is done in me as it is in heaven. So the first phase of building God's kingdom is this spiritual kingdom where God's rule is established in the hearts of a spirit-filled people. That's right. But the return of Christ introduces phase two, if you like, when the kingdom becomes manifest on earth uh, in terms of practical governance of human affairs. It is at this point when Christ takes the reins of human government into his own hands. As the scriptures say, there is more than this present evil age. There's a coming age when he shall come in the glory of his Father and the holy angels, and we shall see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so it's only at that point that the blessings of the messianic kingdom Those lovely visions described by Isaiah and others are realized. Yes, but it's also the point when righteousness and justice are established. Uh, Paul puts it this way when he's talking to the Athenians. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. And until that time, I'm afraid, we must live in a world full of wheat and weeds, as it were. A world full of good and a world full of evil that apparently goes unpunished. Okay, so I'm beginning to see why this idea of a phased building of the kingdom is controversial, because there are many churches today that teach that the fullness of the kingdom is actually available to us now. We don't need to wait for the return of Christ. We can actually manifest all of Isaiah's visions of the future with the tools that we have available to us in the present. I am deeply uncomfortable with that sort of theology for for two main reasons. First, it requires us to ignore the reality of pain and suffering in our lives. But the witness of the New Testament is that in this world of trial and tribulation, we are required to walk the Calvary road. We have to walk the way of the cross. And secondly, it makes the return of Christ a bit of an irrelevance. It requires us to believe that the church can do what I think only the second Adam can do when he returns to bring order to a chaotic world. Okay, Jim, so you've laid out two big principles here. We've got biblical prophecy revealing historical patterns, 
and no specific times or dates. And then secondly, we've got the kingdom of God gets built in phases. For now, we live in a spiritual kingdom as wheat amongst the weeds of this fallen world. But when Christ returns, he will fulfill the mandate given to Adam and rule this world with equity and justice. How can we put all that we've talked about together and get a sense of how the end times will actually unfold? Let me describe one possible model. As I said earlier, I don't personally agree with all of it entirely, but I think it fits well with the tests and the principles we've discussed. And the thing I'm going to describe is a model called historic pre-millennialism. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but it's really quite straightforward. Historic premillennialism gets its name because it was the model that dominated the church for the first three centuries of its existence. There were other models, of course, that were popular. But historical premillennialism seems to have dominated the church uh, for the early centuries of its existence. However, it then fell rapidly out of favour, and it was replaced by a thing called amillennialism. But in more recent centuries, the idea of premillennialism has experienced a surge in popularity once again, particularly in the United States. Now, according to this model, godless humanism will reach its climax when a figure called the Antichrist is worshipped as God. In due time, this man will begin a program of terrible persecution against God's people. And as humanity's evil reaches its zenith, so will God's wrath there will be a time of terrible disaster that will almost destroy the planet. At this point, Christ will return to usher in a long period of just and righteous rule on the earth. Revelation chapter 20 calls this period of time a millennium, which just means a thousand years. Gradually, the planet will be restored to the state the first Adam was supposed to get it into. Humanity in Christ will have fulfilled its God-given role. But even in this wonderful state, the vicious hatred of God that lies at the root of sin is not eradicated. So there will be one last great rebellion, and that will end when the skies are rolled up like a scroll and the general resurrection of the dead occurs uh, so that they can await their final judgment at the great white throne. After that event, the lovely words we thought about at the start from Revelation 21 will be enacted. God will create a new heaven and a new earth for his redeemed people. They have now been trained how to govern through the whole experience of the millennium and now they are equipped to live in the new heaven and the new earth. Why did historic premillennialism actually fall out of favour, Jim? What, what happened there? Well, it's a complicated story. Uh, Craig Blomberg has edited a very helpful book on the subject. You see, the idea of a literal millennial reign is very earthy. <laughs> in other words, it's a really concrete Jewish conception. And in contrast, amillennialism is a much more intellectual, uh, platonic Greek concept. So it's not in the least surprising that Augustine went for it. We also need to think about how the social context of the church changed completely when Constantine converted and Christianity became a state religion. When that happened, Isaiah's visions didn't seem so appealing because life in the here and now suddenly got a lot more pleasant. If I was to be... Uh, completely cynical for a moment, I would say that the popularity of these models depends on how optimistic or pessimistic Christians are feeling about their own lives. Moving to more recent centuries, you mentioned that the idea of a literal millennium had become much more popular, and that was largely down to the writing of a man called J.N. Darby, wasn't it? Yes, he invented a system which is very popular in the States. 
It's sometimes called left-behind theology, although its technical term is pre-tribulationism. Now, his system is a variation on classic historic premillennialism. You may recall when I was talking about that model, I mentioned that just before Christ returns, there is this time of great trial and tribulation for everyone on the planet. But the Bible makes it clear that God's people will not experience God's final wrath on mankind. So Darby divided the return of Christ into two phases. First, Christ returns for his people, the church. They leave the earth in a moment called the rapture. And then, when the tribulation is finished, Christ returns with the saints to establish his millennial kingdom. Now, it must be allowed that Darby's model is based on a careful exegesis of First and Second Thessalonians. So, those who discard his model need to have an equally careful approach to those books of the Bible. It's not entirely fair, as some do, to accuse him of being a modern-day Gnostic. You haven't been too open about your own views yet, Jim. I was wondering if I could press you for a personal opinion on all of this? Well, I mean, the most important thing to say is that my personal views are irrelevant here. Each of us should consider what we believe before the Lord after a careful study of the scriptures. But (laughs) you have asked me a direct question, so I will answer it. I guess it's fair to say that over the years I have swung away from amillennialism to the broad lines of an historic premillennial position. Uh, I've more recently developed some views about how the church will be delivered from the wrath that is launched at the end of the tribulation. But I need to do a lot more study before I would venture to say anything more public about that. The important thing here is to keep the main thing the main thing. The New Testament places enormous significance on the return of Christ. It turns out that the answer to worldliness is the conviction that this little planet is only a temporary training ground for the real life to come. So think deeply about end times, not as a theological puzzle, but an answer to the Apostle Peter's question. In the light of these things, what sort of people ought we to be? Thanks, Jim. This has been a really helpful episode. It certainly prompted me to do a little bit of investigation into these things and uh, to stop running away from them. Thank you all for listening to episode 26 of the Equip Project podcast. It's been really good to have you guys with us. If you have any questions off the back of this episode, please do reach out to us as usual, theequipproject at gmail.com or send us a message via Instagram. 